You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ and a heart for those who haven't heard it yet. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together on this uh, Sunday morning. I pray that you will give us guidance as we follow after uh, the thoughts of one of your uh, ministers of the past century. May we hear well and listen well. And Father, most important, importantly, may it lead us um, to know you more and to love your word deeper. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so... All, all these sort of, uh, these, these beat, you all right over there? Be still my soul. Have we ever sung that around here before? Yeah. Do we do that? That was, that got me all feeling nostalgic. I like that one. It's the National Anthem of Finland. Fin, I noticed the, the tune is Finlandia. Is that right? A lot of suffering in Finland there must be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, to, yeah, right. Um, uh, so to Carl Bart, I'm assuming not all of you were were in the class last week. I can't put the car um, too much in reverse. I will just make a few um, brief comments about kind of where we were last week as we move into this week. Um, just again to give you a brief view of the man, Carl Bart was a theologian from um, the early to middle part of the 20th century. He died in 1968, actually, in his 80s. Um, and was pretty active as a, as a writer and a theologian up until that point. Um, but he was, he was a theologian there in Germany in the middle of the, of the German national crisis that was going on. Um, ended up spending the majority of his teaching life at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Um, he did not do, this is a sort of fascinating side note on Bart, he did, did not do any preaching except for every week in the prison. Um, so he would tell people, if you want to hear me preach, you're going to have to come to prison. Um, so that he, he found himself preaching to prisoners on a regular basis. That's where his sort of preaching outlet lie. Uh, he also um, was, I would think, a pretty dedicated writer in the sense of the the enormity of, out, of output of his own work really kind of boggles the mind. He couldn't have done that without a lot of help. He had a lot of help. Some of it's a little bit weird, actually, but I'll, I'll leave that to the side. Um, he had a lot of help, um, and, uh, and he really left us with a great treasure trove in his magnum opus, which is called The Church Dogmatics. I, I brought, this is volume 4-1, which was kind of my entree, into the reading of Bart, you know, whenever that was, 20 plus years ago. Um, and that's volume 4.1. Um, so you think about it, he has volumes all the way up into this, and it's, you know, if I sort of, the, the girth is about, you know, this, this much shelf space on your, on your shelf. And it's incredible when you think about the kind of detailed and um, engaged analysis that Bart brings to two things. Number one, um, the whole history of Western Christianity, that, that boggles my own mind. His ability to engage figures not on a surface level, but on a deep and penetrating level from sort of the beginning of the early church up into the modern period. 
And the second thing that I think fascinates about Bart is his engagement with the Bible. And this is what kind of what brings us together. Um, Bart's, um, and this, this is going to sound like an overstatement, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it and then I'll try to defend it. I do think that Karl Barth in his theology um, engages the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the canon, um, probably more uh, than any other figure in the history of the church. <laughs> okay, now let me just say that. That was big, that was big, that was big. All right, when it came out, I regretted it. Um, but, but why do I say that? Well, partly because he wrote so much Right. So, I mean, if you, for example, if you if you compare um, the Church Dogmatics to Calvin's Institutes, for example, you know Calvin's Institutes are two volumes. They're rather large, but it's two volumes. You multiply that by ten, and you have sort of Bart's basically Institutes of the Christian Religion. So he wrote a lot more, had a lot more space to engage with the Scriptures. But when, when it comes to doing theology for Karl Barth. Doing theology was not a step removed from the Bible. This is the main point I wanted to make. In other words, the Bible did not provide for Karl Barth a kind of platform to then go on, and now I want to say what I really want to say. In other words, that's a kind of, and I'll put this softly, but it's a kind of proof-texting approach to the Bible. You know, in other words, we're going to, I'm going to give you my big theological point. Here it is, and here are five verses down in the, in the you know, in the footnotes to, to to verify and to provide proof of what I've said. Right? You can go to this verse, that verse, that verse, and that verse. Bart didn't really think in that way. He thought in more symphonic and canonical terms, and what might best be described as a truly biblical theologian. Um, for example, and I brought it here just just to show you. Well, this is fun. Opening it. Um, his section entitled uh, "The Pride of Man" is long, but I wanted to show you something here, just because I think it's so interesting. So this is kind of how Bart set up his dogmatics, All right? So you can see, um, maybe you can't. Think twelve-point font here, right? Then he goes to flipping the page. 10-point font. All right. Uh, and that 10-point font, I'm going to explain that to you in a second, is how many pages? Da, 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 da. Is uh, 10 pages of 10-point font, single space. And if you want to know my own sense of, sense of the matter, Bart is best at the 10-point font level. Now, this is where Bart says, I've been telling you all about th- this particular issue, the pride of man. Now, I want to tell you how, for example, Augustine all the way to Luther thought about the pride of man in light of the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. He'll do that in the 10-point font section. What else he does in the 10-point font section is he engages the Bible. So, And, and you saw this. This 10 pages of 10-point font, he's come to this section in the dogmatics entitled The Pride of Man, which Bart identifies as humanity's intractable problem. But if you want to identify what humanity's intractable problem is, um, to use uh, uh, very um, up-to-date Bible scholar language, the plight of humanity that needs a solution. This is, this is language that's bandied about in New Testament scholarship. The plight of humanity that needs the solution of God's redemption is, for Bart, primarily humanity's pride. It goes all the way back to the garden. Um, you can be like God. You can assert yourself. You can actualize yourself. Um, Bart would say that that is humanity at its worst, which, by the way, 
is in significant counterdistinction from the cultural environment, environment of the first century world. In the first century world where Paul is writing the letters that he wrote that we heard so beautifully exposited this morning, when Paul is writing those letters, self-assertion, self-affirmation, self-actualization, that's really the kind of pinnacle of the Aristotelian view of what it means to be a virtuous and fully happy person. It's to, sort of, it's to bring yourself into ultimate actualization, self-realization. And the, the Apostle Paul is saying a big fat no to that, right? Along with the whole of the Bible. And Bart says it's the pride of man that is the primary problem that needs to be, that needs to be absolved, that needs to be redeemed. So he gives a long expose on that. And you know how he, this, this is the point, how he ends this section on the pride of man. It's fascinating. Ten pages of ten point font, single space, of an exposition of the whole of the book of Jeremiah. Not a, you, you want a proof text for love your wife and, and, you know, and spank your children, right? Well, here they are. Isaiah 3, not in there, but, uh, you know, uh, Proverbs 22, all these, no, no. Bart ends his section on the pride of man with a detailed and full exposition of the whole book of Jeremiah. And he ends that section in the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 45 where, where the prophet says to Baruch, remember his scribe, if you seek great things, seek them not for yourself. Because Jeremiah models for us the prophetic existence of entering into the suffering and sorrow of humanity. And by entering into the suffering and sorrow of humanity, that's where God meets you in the ruins of your existence to rebuild those broken walls according to His own redemptive plan. If Baruch or Jeremiah had gone their own way and sought great things for themselves, they would have bypassed God's own redeeming activity. And you remember this from the book of Jeremiah, right? What's Jeremiah telling King Zedekiah? And Jehoiakim, and even the governor Gedaliah, when they're all, they've all been exiled to, ba to Babylon. What's he telling them? Hey, this moment is a moment of judgment. If you want to enjoy the benefit of God's redemption, then you have to yield to the moment of judgment that's coming now. And so this is how Bart ends this entire section on the pride of man by entering into suffering and sorrow and giving this detailed exposition of the book of Jeremiah. And this is what I love about it, right? So he, this, this is the, for, you know, to use symphonic uh, metaphors, the exposition of the book of Jeremiah, that's the cymbal crash. That's the timpani rolling in the 1812 overture, right? It's, uh, this, this is the moment, is this long exposition. And after he's done expositing the book of Jeremiah, that's it. It's not, and now let me go back to 12-point font again, the big stuff, and, and explain this to you a little bit more. No, no, no. It's as if Bart is saying he's modeling something here. The exposition of Jeremiah is enough to end this conversation and now move on to something else. I don't need to better it now with my own formulations on the matter. I've given you a detailed exposition of this book and how it sort of unfolds in Jeremiah 45, and that's enough to put the exclamation point on the end of this long exposition on the pride of man. Now, let's move on to something else. As Bart is saying, I'm going to allow the Bible to do its work, and theology is done by engaging the Bible itself. And that is a crucial distinction that I think, at least for me, has been sort of sky-opening. I don't do the Bible to then kind of get to theology, right? 
but it's my theological world that really kind of allows me to get into the Bible and remain there because that's where the gold is. The gold is remaining close to the biblical text itself. Right? So that's, that's one of the reasons why this sort of whole engagement with this dead man is so important because he models something that I think um, stands as a testament and a testimony to the ways in which the Bible and the engagement with the Bible can do its own work without a lot of whipped cream and cherries on top. You know, it can just, it's, it's the cake, it can do, I'll stop with the metaphors, isn't enough. All right. Uh, so, with all that said, I'll put this over here. Um, now I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Bart's uh, steps of exegesis, or his, his principles of exposition. So if Bart were to come in here today and say, I want to teach you all how to, how to study your Bible. Th- this is what I, what I believe he would say based off of his own work. Okay, So I'd like to talk a little bit about Bart's understanding of how one goes about the process of, of interpreting the Bible. But before we do that, before we do that, um, I need to give you Bart's, what I call his sort of fundamental presuppositions uh, when it comes to reading the Bible. Right, so fundamental presuppositions, okay? Um, oh, I, I don't like it when people read quotes to me but without seeing it, but here I go. Can you hang with me? Here's a, here's a large quote from Karl Barth. A member of the church claims direct, absolute, and material freedom not for himself or herself. This is big, big claim here. But only for Holy Scripture as the Word of God. I've got more to say, but let me back up on that. As a member of the church, that member claims direct, absolute, and material freedom not for him or herself. This is a really, really big deal. Because Bart has often been described as the theologian of freedom. Right? Uh, matter of fact, when he... When he visited the United States, I've heard this lecture. When he visited the United States and was giving these lectures up at Princeton Seminary, um, they asked him about his trip, and he said, as I came into New York, I saw the Statue of Liberty. And then, kind of making a little funny theology joke, he said, I think that statue needs to be demythologized. You know, he said that. Why? Because Bart's understanding of what it means to be free is not necessarily the same thing as we understand within our own cultural milieu and say an American context of independent solidarity and autonomy. Right? Freedom is me being autonomous from anything outside of myself. Bart said that's not real freedom. In fact, that kind of freedom is actually bondage. Right? That, that's the kind of thing that we heard Andrew preaching on just uh, in, in the last hour. That's actually bondage. To be free, and completely free for yourself and yourself alone, you becoming the kind of center of the universe, that's, that's actually not, um, that's not freedom, that's, that's bondage and actually self-tyranny. Well, it's tyranny. Um, there's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. You know the, 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 the philosophical category of, of, um, of, of solipsism? Um, you know that that you believe you're the only entity in the world. Um, that, that, uh, anyway, apparently uh, he was at some sort of conference and he met a bona fide solipsist who believed that from a philosophical standpoint. And planting a jokingly asked somebody, he said, um, who a colleague, what's it like working with a solipsist? 
and uh, and they said, well, we treat the, the colleagues said we treat him really well because if he goes, we all go, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's that's the kind of freedom that Bard is leading against. That, that, that we don't we don't claim autonomy for ourselves. Um, I, I'm not sure. Again, I mentioned this in the Augustine class two weeks ago. Um, and again, take take this with all the hyperbole that's attached to it, okay? And, and the reductionism that's attached to it. But I'm I'm not sure I can identify a larger crisis facing Western Christianity than the one that Bart anticipated 70 years ago. Namely, what does it mean for a Christian to be free? What does that freedom mean? Is it is it a freedom that's drawn? from the categories of my own experience and existential moment that then becomes the arbiter and the adjudicator of all things that I see outside of myself? Is that what freedom is? Is that how I measure the reality of our world? Is that how I make moral judgments in our world? Is that how I do that? Or, as Bart says here, or do we claim freedom only for Holy Scripture as the Word of God? Well, he goes on. But obedience to the free Word of God in Holy Scripture is subjectively conditioned. That means you as the, as the reader. It's conditioned by the fact that each individual who confesses his or her acceptance of the testimony of the Bible must be willing and prepared to undertake the responsibility for its interpretation and application. Freedom in the church is limited as an indirect, relative, and formal freedom by the freedom of Holy Scripture in which it is grounded. In other words, can I, let me parse this out, because this, this is a big quote, and there's a lot going on here, but I think this is where seismic plates begin to shift for us in the way in which we think about our place in the world and our place in Christ's church. Where is genuine freedom to be found? Genuine freedom is to be found, according to, I think, Barden, with the whole history of the Christian church, I believe, is to be found in submission and yielding to the ultimate freedom and sovereignty and authority of the biblical text itself because it's rooted and grounded in God's own life. The Scriptures is not an abstract entity. The Scriptures are rooted and grounded in God's own life and His self-giving and His being, which is a being of love, which exudes over and communicates to us in redemptive moments. That's where genuine freedom is to be found. And this is where Bart, drinking the Protestant Kool-Aid, I think I read one of the pieces in the, in the um, Adventurer that came out a couple weeks ago, or whenever it came out, talking about the distinction between clergy and laity. What was that? I think that might have been Andrew's uh, piece. Uh, as one that is, is, is a bona fide distinction, but one that's been forced too hard, I think. And that this is very much a reformational instinct. This is what Bart's saying right here. In other words, it's the responsibility of all Christians to yield themselves to the interpretation and the application of Scripture. What does that mean? That means I'm seeking to order my thoughts and my prayers and my being with what is in the Word, right? And then to apply it both to my life and to the world in which I, in which I reside. That's the responsibility of, of all Christians. And it's not to make a distinction between those who have a teaching office. You still value that. But it's all of our responsibility to be engaged in that kind of work. Why? Because that's where genuine freedom is found. Genuine freedom is found there. We claim freedom um, for the Scriptures themselves to do their work. I've been thinking about that this week. Um, 
And it's sort of, I've been convicted about it, frankly. Convicted. And thinking about as this sort of turns in on me. Um, Because it's easy enough to pick out um, my hot button issues that I'm all exercised about in in, in the world of our cultural mess. It's easy for me to pick those out. But what about the ways in which the scriptures sort of speak against my own um, instincts and predilections? You know, so it's very easy to it's very easy to start picking out you know um, Sanspers in other people's eyes, right? While I while I've got the log of my own, and this is where Bart is saying genuine freedom is a freedom that allows your being to come under the scrutiny of the scriptures to reveal you for who you are and God for who He is. That's where true freedom is to be found. Hebrews chapter 4. What is the Bible? It's a sword. It cuts deep. It cuts into the marrow and it reveals who God is and what God's being is. That's a fundamental presupposition. Here's another uh, fundamental presupposition for Bart. Can I read this quote to you? One more. We can't leave yet. So, um, he says scriptural, and I'm, he says exegesis. That's a big fancy word for just interpreting the Bible. Okay, scriptural interpretation rests on the assumption that the message which Scripture has to give us, even in its apparently most debatable and least assimilable parts, you know, those parts where you go, "What in the heck is he talking about there?" Mount Carmel, cows of Bashan, uh, swords and the fat of a dead judge. You know, in the book of Judges, awesome story. I mean, even in those weird parts, that it's in all circumstances truer and more important than the best and most necessary things that we ourselves have said or can say. The term that he uses here in this context is subordination. We yield ourselves in a subordinate way to the content and the and the and the reach of Scripture. Okay. Now um, I want to talk about that more because Bart's not quoting Saint Augustine here. He should have actually, right? Uh, because he draws that right from the Saint Augustine playbook and almost quotes it verbatim without telling you. It's, it's all right. It's a little, little plagiarism. Never hurt anybody. Don't tell my students. But, <laughs> I, I, Spurgeon said, you know, a sermon without plagiarism is probably boring, so it's, it's okay. Um, so, but all, all to say, what's, what's, the, what's the Augustinian principle here? The Augustinian principle is that the Bible, in its entirety, read in light of its triune subject matter, um, is better than anything that we can say ourselves. And, and honestly, I, I genuinely believe that on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Right? And that's a struggle to really to really yield to that assertion. But the Bible, in its totality, re- related to its subject matter and our triune God, is better than the best things that I have to say on my own. What, what, what that, what's not stated here, what sort of underlying this is, do we really believe that God is the author of the Bible or not? And that doesn't mean that we measure the Bible by its literary quality. Because some of the stories of the Bible and the way in which the Bible is written, it's not nearly as good as Shakespeare. This is not. I mean, some of the Shakespeare and Science are incredible, right? Um, it's not about its literary quality. It's, it's a confession of faith that this book here and the human authors that God used to bring it together, um, that it has its ultimate authority and its ultimate force because God is its author. 
Um, there's a Lutheran theologian named Robert Jensen when I was a student at uh, St. Andrews. Very excited about him coming. He's, he was, he's very aged now. You know, he was aged then, too. Um, but lucid still and, and, and kind of snarky. So, and we all knew that. You know, he didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, he wore a beret. I mean, all, all, I was just wait, waiting for him to have like a, you know, one of those cigarette, thing, long cigarette. He didn't have that. But it, it, there he was. He walks in, and, and this is probably one of the greatest living theologians in America at the time. And here's coming to St. Andrews to speak, and we were supposed to read a little piece that he wrote on the Bible and the Trinity. He wasn't going to lecture. He says, read this piece, and then we'll just talk. So here he was, and, and boy, he was on. I mean, he was just on. And someone asked him, and it was a weird question the way it was put, but I think they just wanted to see how he would respond. So who actually did write the Bible? And here's this luminary. I mean, he's a, he's a towering figure in sort of the American theological landscape, and the European landscape as well. Towering figure, and this is his response. I'll never forget it. He said, if you were to have asked me this when I was a student, a theology student in Germany 50 years ago. I would have gone to my shelf and I'd have pulled off all these books and I would have talked to you about the theology of the Yahwist and, and the Eloist and what the priestly writers were doing in the Old Testament and how the Johannine community put together the Johannine books and da-da-da-da. I would have given you all the classic critical answers to who wrote the Bible and that would have been how I would have led 50 years ago. But today, I'll just say God. <laughs> and then we moved on. And I was like, that, I mean, it's so simple, but to confess that as true, and again, I have to repent myself into that confession regularly that that's true, that God is the author of the Bible with all of its bizarre character and confusion and beauty, that God is the author. If that's really true, then that's game, set, and match. It's everything. That's why Karl Barth says that ultimate freedom is found in the pages of Holy Scripture because it is the unique vehicle that God has determined in His own freedom to be the means by which He talks to you and to me. It doesn't leave us in the echo chambers of our own minds with the creative imaginations of our own individual selves. It doesn't do that. He has spoken to us and He's spoken to us in the frailty of nouns and verbs and modifiers. He does it in the Bible, right? So with all that said, and what's our time? Oh, plenty of time. Here are Bart's three steps of exegesis. I'm going to give it to you, and I have a document on this. If you want me to send it to you, feel free to email me. But here are his three, three approaches. Nothing earth-shattering here. Number one is the act of observation or explanation. The technical term is explicatio. Um, this is this would be the part on the explanation side of why you go into our um, living room up here by Clemen Commons and yank a commentary on Mark off the shelf, or you yank a commentary on Job off the shelf, because you know that just reading through this, there are certain things that are a challenge just to know what's being said. That's often half the half the hurdle when reading the Bible is what in the world is being said. You know, I, I made the fatal attempt about five years ago with some colleagues at Sanford to try to read through Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind. What a disaster! I mean, it's horrible. I mean, I, I I'll just say this out loud. There are two people in this world: people that um, that uh, say they read Hegel and liars, right? I mean, it's like. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, you, you see, I have to, I have to, someone's going to have to filter this for me because I can't even figure out his syntax. I mean, what do these words mean, right? Um, half of the battle for us in reading the Bible is just understanding and observing what's there. Being able to put nouns and verbs together. Imagery that might not be immediately obvious to us. Like, what does it mean to say, I am like a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley? I mean, that's something that we, we bandy about all the time. And then you maybe pull off a commentary in Song of Solomon, um, or you open up a dictionary of biblical imagery, which is a great resource, by the way, and you read, huh, a rose of Sharon and a lily of the valley were the most common flowers of the time. In other words, maybe the metaphor that's being used here is not a metaphor to talk about uh, something that's pretty and unique, but sort of common and everyday. And if you look contextually what's going on in Song of Solomon, that's probably what's being said there. I was a ro- I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm, I'm not anything special. There's lot, lots of flowers like me around. That's, that's, that's probably what's going on. And, and there are, there's all kind of literature out there to help you with that. Mount Carmel. What does it mean in Psalm 133 to talk about the dew of Mount Hermon coming all the way down to Zion? Well, Mount Hermon's about 120 miles away from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem. Well, how does that work? Well, all of that's there in just wrestling with the words themselves. You've got to wrestle with the words. What's going on here? All kinds of resources for that. So that's step one, just observing and trying to come to terms with what's there. And by the way, that's part of the fun, I think, of, of studying and engaging the Bible. Because that's, that's a process, and that's a, an intellectual and spiritual exercise that you will probably be doing to the day that you die. I mean, I'm pulling off stuff all the time off the shelf, like, well, what does that mean? Um, or, or uh, who's, who's Nimrod again? Um, you know, what's going on there? What, Marduk? Who's that? I mean, I'm pulling stuff off the shelf all the time, okay? But this, that's, that's step number one. And that's kind of basic, I think. But the second step is one that I think is often forgotten. What, what Bart calls meditatio, meditation. The German term is nachdenken, to think after, right? Now, and this is where, um, to borrow, I think, from uh, the Christian reading tradition, what we might call, um, have you heard this term before? Lectio divina. Um, it's it's not just reading in a kind of academic way, but it's reading along a spiritual line of reading. Matter of fact, if you want a great resource on this, Eugene Peterson wrote a whole book. Well, he got in the press this week. But he wrote a whole book um, entitled "Eat This Book," um, and it's all on the spiritual practice of lectio divina. It's a very good book, um, and this is where you meditate and you reflect and you and you create space in your study, for the Scriptures to, do, to then begin to do their searching work on you. I think that's what Barth said. Now, I'm not just in, engaged in a kind of intellectual exercise. What is the Cal Bashan? Now I'm moving to an, another phase and thinking now that I've wrestled with the, those words, try to come to terms with them, how then do I think after this? How do I meditate on this? How do I reflect on this? How do I let this text now search me? Um, the, uh, Psalm chapter 1, and on his word and on his law, he meditates day and night, right? like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The Hebrew term for meditate is an onomatopoetic word, um, chagah. If, if you looked it up in a, in a Hebrew lexicon, it would say cooing of a dove, uh, a chewing of a lion. 
Uh, third option, meditating, right? Well, why? Um, you, you've seen these National Geographic shows where, you know, the lions have just pounced on the gazelle and from the 200 yard, you know, uh, deep range lens, they look in and they, and what, what do you hear as those lions red faced now? What sound do you hear? This is the sound you hear. Haga, 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 haga. Right, it's that chewing sound. Okay, that's what how the scripture sort of uses the metaphor for meditating. I'm, I'm chewing on it, reflecting on it, thinking about it, not just passing by. I'm trying to press beyond a surface reading to a deeper reading, a more textured reading that brings me to bear and that also brings sort of the world to bear around me. And then the last uh, 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 stage of reading for Bard is what he calls application. Or applicatio. This is where now you think about how the Bible and what the Bible is saying works itself out in the way in which I think, in the way in which I live, in the way in which I pray, I worship. Now I think about how to apply what I've heard here um, to to my own being, to my own self. And that's where sort of individual or corporate Bible study comes into play. But that's what preaching is doing. You just saw our dean do that for us this morning. All three of those aspects of Romans chapter 8 were present in our sermon this morning. A lot of observation went into that. A lot of hard work went into what's Paul doing here? What is Paul talking about when he says Sark's flesh versus Numa spirit? And how do we need to be challenged with the ways in which we think about those categories naturally and the way in which Paul's thinking about them? Because Paul's not quite thinking about those categories the same ways in which you might. Andrew did a lot of work on that, right? And then he's meditating on it. And then he's applying it to our lives. That's, that work of preaching is really kind of moved into a microcosm of our own individual and sort of group study of the Bible as we, as we preach the Bible to ourselves. We all become sort of little, little preachers. But here's one of the things that I love, and I'll close with this. The classic term for this third category of Bible study is called, the technical term is usus scripturae, the use of scripture. If you read a Jonathan Edwards sermon, which I encourage you to do, by the way, but if you read a Jonathan Edwards sermon, you'll see this text, one text, and then observation one, observation two, observation three. And then after that, you'll see use one, use two, use three. It's a classic Puritan approach to preaching. We're going to observe the text, we're going to look at what the words that are there, and then we're going to see how the, how this is applied into our setting. But our normal understanding of the use of Scripture is, and here's a, where Bart begins to play with language, is we use the Scriptures. Now, we seek to apply the Scriptures. Bart says, but probably a better way of understanding the use of Scripture is the other way. But this is where now the Scriptures begin to use us. They make their effect and their presence known on us. Why does Bart talk this way about the Bible? Because the Bible is free. Because the Bible is a part of God's very own identity and His self-giving to His people. All right? I would love to take questions. I'll, I'll hang around for a few minutes if you want to uh, bat some things around, but let, let's close in prayer. So, Father, thank You um, for this very able and, and uh, gift, the gifted man that You gave to the church. And we're thankful, Lord. Um, and I pray, Lord, that You will... In my own heart, and in, in our own, in all of our hearts, will give us that due sense of a, of a joy, um, real joy, Lord, in in pursuing you. And I, I need you to do that work in my own heart. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for those who've been burned by the church and a heart for the city of Birmingham. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.